Stan Deo studied at the U.S. Air Force Academy and stood out for his startling abilities. And later on, he got to excel in certain fields concerning physics, computer programming, uh, propulsion systems. He got to work with the legendary Dr. Edward Teller. And then he traveled to Australia, where he worked on some reverse engineering programs concerning flying sources. And he is the first whistleblower to have come forward in the 1970s, revealing the existence of secret space programs working on these advanced reverse engineered technologies. You're listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala, your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global, and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, here's Dr. Michael Sala. Well, welcome, Stan, to Exopolitics Today. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to talk with you, Doctor. Appreciate your work. Well, you, you truly have a fascinating history, and I, I think uh, you, there were a number of things about your background that made you stand out and, and brought you to the attention of some very powerful people. And uh, you uh, were enrolled in the U.S. Air Force Academy, and somehow you came to the attention of uh, General Curtis LeMay, the the Chief of Staff of the Air Force. So why don't you tell us about that? Well, uh, I was a fourth-class cadet at the time, um, and um, as a fourth-classman, it's like at uh, West Point, etc., in Annapolis, um, you aren't allowed to sit up like a normal human being and uh, eat meals, drink coffee, you know, at mealtime, stuff like that. You're under the thumb of the upperclassmen. And um, I had a particularly nasty upperclassman that was our table commander, and um, he he was talking to us there one day, and he said, look, I want all you fourth classmen, you doolies, I want you to get a picture of your girlfriend in a skimpy bikini and uh, bring it here, you know, to, to the table here in the next few weeks so that we can all have a look at them. And uh, I said, well, sir, um, I don't currently have a girlfriend back home. Can I get a picture of something else that uh, would, would satisfy that? And he said, yeah, uh, some important person. So, uh, yes, sir. So we left. I went back to my room and I thought, well, you know, General Curtis LeMay, you know, head of SAC, uh, you know, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, you know, I, I'll write him and I'll say, look, I'm not complaining. Uh, this is a an ask. Uh, it's a kind of a joke of my table commander, you know, and I explained the situation in a letter. And it would really be cool if, uh, you know, you give me permission to drink coffee, a coffee chit. That would do. And uh, I sent it off. Well, I, actually, I went down the hallway there in, in the 22nd Squadron area, and I gave the letter over to the, the, the postal guy there behind the you know, little grill. And he says, oh, you've written this to, you know, General LeMay. And I said, yeah. He said, oh, we had a, a cadet do that last week, and they've uh, court-martialed him. I said, oh, uh, well, give it back. He said, oh, no, it's in the system now. Sorry, I can't do that. So for the next few days, I sweated whether I was going to get court-martialed or whatever for this. And um, then all of a sudden, it arrived. The letter you've got there in the screen uh, you know, to Cadet Fourth Class Dale, and here's a coffee chip from, uh, you know, signed by Curtis LeMay. So I put it in my vest, uh, you know, out of sight, and went to the next meal and the next one, and several days went by before he says, hey, 
Hey, Dale, um, did you uh, get a letter from somebody important so we can drink coffee, you know, coffee chat? I said, uh, yes, sir, I did. He said, well, send it up. Let us see. So I took it out of my vest, and I gave it over to the senior cadet next to me, and he looked at it. He opened it up and says, oh, J.C., he says, is this real? I said, yes, sir, it is. So now everybody in the table focused on that letter, and he sends it up to the table commander. Table commander opens up, and he says, wow, gentlemen, he says, this man has just talked to God and survived. Um, everybody, sit at ease. And so it, uh, it was kind of legendary for, you know, for months after that. I would uh, go sometimes on the weekend and sit at other tables and other table commanders, and uh, I'd say, sir, cadet uh, fourth class day uh, will request permission for all of the fourth class cadets to sit at ease, and here's the letter. He says, oh, you're that guy. It's okay. Everybody sit at ease. So that was why, you know, that was my one and only introduction to Curtis LeMay. I, I really thought he was cool. They used to call him old iron ass because he was so, so hard to deal with, you know, if you broke the rules. Well, that, that was certainly... Uh... Uh, kind of exceptional, uh, certainly something that surprised your commanding officers there. Oh, yeah. uh, but but you didn't actually complete your U.S. Air Force Academy training. So, I mean, you got very close to completion and, and then so something happened. So, you know, can you just walk us through what happened with you not completing uh, the okay. academy and becoming an Air Force officer? Um, well, first of all, I was there a year before, you know, fourth class year. I was there at the Air Force Academy prep school. It was the only way I could get into the academy by appointments uh, from my congressman, Bruce Alger. There was no openings other than that prep school. So I went there. And it, actually, it's down the hill, probably a quarter mile from the actual academy. So I went there, you know, accomplished that and then became a fourth classman in the following year. Fourth classman is the starting point. And um, I was elected uh, by my fellow classmen, uh, fourth classmen, uh, as the honor code representative. They trusted me enough to sit in judgment on them and other cadets in the fourth class year. If they violated uh, any of the rules or laws, you know, or you know, the ethical code, anything like that, I had to sit in judgment of them uh, with my uh, fellow officers in the honor uh, corps. Anyway, so um, it was a respected position, and. The, one day, some of us noticed in, in the Corps that that there were cadets that were being drummed out by the, the regular Air Force spying on them through a window into their candy room or the boot room in each squadron area. And we noticed that, well, one guy was a short guy. And they didn't like short officers. Another guy was black. They didn't want black officers. And we, we saw this pattern forming. And so we, we said, look, you know, you guys are... are trumping up charges like the, uh, the 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 black cadet here in uh, our area you you accused him of stealing a, uh, about a 10 cent candy bar and we were allowed you know at night you know even after lights out to go to the Buddha room to get you know something to eat and mark it up on our chart and then pay for it on Thursday on payday well this particular cadet had gone in gotten a candy bar and walked out without paying for it uh, to his room and came back, you know, the next couple of days and marked it down because he'd forgotten to do it. Well, they said, because you left without marking it down at that moment, we're going to kick you out of the Air Force Academy. And how did they know this? Because they had a crew sitting outside on the, uh, above the tarmac on a cross, cross uh, walk there at night with cameras looking into these boot rooms to film this stuff. 
So we thought this was uncalled for, uh, and, and there was 120 to 180 of us there that complained about this in the, in the Corps. And we said, look, if you don't uh, let these guys come back and, and treat them fairly, we're going to uh, refuse to take our final exams. It was around Christmas time. And they said, oh, well, if that's the way you feel about it, you're all dismissed from the academy, and they kicked us out. Um, but we were standing up for what was right and what was ethical. And uh, so, you know, I left the academy, went back to Dallas, and um, where I lived, and uh, went to I IBM to study computing and uh, systems analyst, and, and ended up learning uh, three or four computer languages. Um, I did have an IQ of over 180, um, so that was kind of brought me to the attention of a number of people, which, you know, later got me inducted into the, the program with Dr. Teller. So why don't you tell us about uh, Dr. Teller and what it was that attra uh, attracted you to him? Well, him to me, uh, well, I was actually, um, they recruited me. I was there in Dallas, as I said, in the computer business. And uh, after several years of being in that and uh, establishing my credentials and, you know, and abilities in the community there, I was uh, at uh, the latest client, which was uh, 100 corporations in a conglomerate there at Deltex Optical. And I had an office up uh, next to the CEO about two doors down, and uh, I managed uh, several crew uh, or several uh, programmers there. Um, we were called in, uh, and uh, we were to find if the current programmer who, uh, and operator of their systems, he'd been, he'd been fired, uh, and we were to find out if he'd left any Trojans in the system that would hurt them economically, and so my crew and I were working on that, and we did find the, the bomb several uh, days before it was about to go off and wipe out the payroll records for about 3,000 employees. Anyway, um, I was there in my office, a private office, had a blackboard that I could swing around, and I was working, uh, you know, like way late hours, and so sometimes I would work on my own projects at home on the back side of the blackboard, which I'd flip over for daytime work and flip it over for my work. And I was working on a, a, a method of propelling um, saucer craft, is what it amounted to, and uh, dealing with uh, gravity, how to interact with gravity electrically. Now, I, you know, no one else knew what I was doing unless I peaked at night or during the daytime when I wasn't there. So I'd gone out this one particular morning uh, downstairs to the uh, canteen to uh, get a cup of coffee, a piece of cake or something, and just relax. Now, this canteen had hold maybe a 1,000 people. It was a big place. And when I went down there, there were no no other people there except the cooks and stuff. They were getting uh, lunch ready. So this guy that I recognized from being upstairs, he was an actuary for one of our life insurance companies. Uh, he came into the canteen and uh, cafeteria. And uh, he walked over and sat right in front of me at my table. Now, you know, I didn't invite him. I didn't know him. And uh, I, I said, oh, well, you know, good morning. And um, uh, as um, as we sat there, you know, I was having my cup of coffee, and he was having a cigarette. You know how they, he was European. Um, uh, I think, let's see, Awanski, that's probably Polish. Anyway, he had his cigarette between his fingers here, and he'd go like this, you know, I can't even do it. But... You know, and he blows smoke, and he says, um, I'm, you know, Dr. Awanski. He says, what um, what are you, and what do you do? And I told him, and I said, um, yeah, good to meet you. And um, he said, well, tell me about yourself. What are you doing? And I said, well, you mean at home or here? He said, oh, well, whatever. 
And so I, I mentioned that I'd been working on a gravitic you know, equation and uh, been working on the design of a, a way to test that with a craft and, you know. And uh, then we howdied and shook and left. He says, oh, before we did that, he says, oh, look, you know, you really ought to talk to a friend of mine here. He'd be very interested in what you're doing. And I says, oh, yeah, well, you know, I wasn't interested in, in doing that, but I took the piece of paper and the name that he gave me and put it in my pocket and left. About a month went by. I went down to get coffee again and off hours, and I was again the only one there. And here he comes. He shows up, comes over and sits down in front of me, and he says, um, hey, uh, you haven't gone to see my friend, Dr. Maxfield. And I said, oh, yeah, no, look, I've been pretty busy and, you know, fluffed it off. He says, this afternoon at 3.30, you have an appointment at his office. Here's the address. Be there. Oh, okay. I thought, this is weird. And um, other weird things have been happening, so I... I did treat this as weird because I'd been recruited by the FBI, one of 700 uh, informants in the field that they had hired that year, to monitor certain operations of our corporation in overseas dealings uh, in Israel and uh, the Middle East. And so I was an undercover, you know, like spy. And so when this happened, I thought, this is weird. Anyway, I went to the, to the appointed address and time. When I got there in a the parking lot, it was just, you know, probably five minutes' drive from the office there in Dallas, uh, there was a parking lot, and I was the only car in it. And there was this kind of long building. Um, you know, it had a normal wooden-type door, but I couldn't see any windows where I was. And uh, so I walked up to it, and I uh, knocked on the door. There was no answer, so I opened it, just a normal open door, not a push door or anything. And I looked down this long hallway, and I could see light about halfway down coming in through a window or something, and a couple of doors to my left and right that were shut down this hallway. So I called out, told them who I was. There was no answer, and I thought, oh, boy, uh, this is a setup of some sort, you know, thinking back to the FBI involvement. So I walked in very carefully down the hallway toward that light down there coming through that window. And I got there, and it was a receptionist's desk, but she wasn't there. And all the way down, I kept looking to see if doors open behind me or anything. There was, we were alone. Well, she comes out from the, the, the restroom or whatever, and she says, so, hi, can I help you? And I said, well, look, uh, I'm Stan Dale. I was told to meet uh, Dr. Maxfield, uh, you know, Jim Maxfield here today. And she, oh, yes, he's expecting you. Uh, just wait here a moment. And I stood by her, her desk there, and further down the hallway, these double doors burst open, and out comes this tall, I mean, really bigger than me guy with his cowboy boots and a big cigar and his white lab coat. And he comes up and he says, hi, boy, I'm Jim Maxfield. And I said, well, uh, Stan Dale, yeah, yeah, I know. He says, uh, come on into my office across here from the receptionist, and let's have a talk. So we get in there, and as we're coming in, I, I'm noticing pictures and certificates you know, diplomas and stuff on his wall. And I realized this guy is, he's a friend of Edward uh, Teller's. He's, uh, he, in fact, here he is drinking champagne in a submarine, but he and Teller are going under the pole. And uh, I see all of his uh, degrees from the University of Texas and other places. You know, I knew he was a very smart fellow. And so I sat down and he says, okay, uh, boy, tell me, tell me what you're doing at home. And I thought, okay, um, well, at home, I'm kind of working on uh, a way to unify magnetic fields and uh, gravity and electrostatics. He says, well, look, don't fence with me. He says, we know you're doing, uh, you know, anti-gravity research at home. I said, you do? He says, yeah, yeah. 
I said, well, you know, I didn't want to use the term anti-gravity because I thought, you know, this would be an insult to a guy that's this bright, you know, he'd want to talk electrolytics or something. But anyway, he says, look, um, we know what you're up to, and uh, we'd like to invite you to, to join our group. And I said, what group was that? And he says, well, it's kind of like a, a, a research group. Um, we are researching anti-gravity. In fact, we're a little bit ahead of where you are. We've already built several craft and are flying them around. And would you like to join our team? And, of course, you know, I thought, okay, where do I sign? And he says, well, you're going to have to go to Australia. We're going to move you and your family down to Australia to our facility there. And, uh, you know, we'll brief you on all this stuff. But uh, right now I need to get uh, Bob Gray over at the Australian Consulate in San Francisco to set you up as an electrical engineer. We're going to have you be called that. I said, well, I don't have a degree in that. And he said, doesn't matter. That's what you're going to go down as. And, uh, you know, we'll do the health checks on you and your family for TB and that kind of stuff and then give you the tickets and off you go. So probably, oh, six, seven weeks passed and I had uh, I'd passed the medicals, so did, my, so did my wife and children. And I'd uh, walked around, carried papers by hand to sell my home and get it processed through the real estate agency and all that kind of stuff, packed up all my goods and boxes and left them on the floor. I couldn't tell anybody about this. Uh, that was one of the terms. And uh, I had a, a date for us to fly out on a Sunday, which was, um, you know, a Sunday uh, a week away. And uh, so I called my dad and mom, which uh, I hadn't told this to yet. And I said, look, uh, there's, there's been some strange things happening. And uh, I can't explain to you now, but I'm going to go off to Australia for a while. And I want you to take all the boxes and stuff and papers I left at my house locked up. Here's the key. And it's been sold, and, you know, give my car away to my brother and everything else. And I said, um, you know, we'll see you. And I said, uh, let's uh, let's go this afternoon. And in essence, I said, meet me out at Lovefield Airport. The family and I are going to leave today. This was a week early. And why did I do that? Because it was an open ticket to uh, Sydney, Australia. And um, because I was a bit suspicious of them knowing what I'd been doing, whether I was just going to have a, a plane crash or something before I got to Australia, and that was the end of it. So I thought, I'll leave a week early to be sure that the plane is, you know, they don't pick up the fact that I'm on that plane and bomb it or whatever. Got down to Australia, uh, you know, about midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning. Uh, and at that time, Sydney Airport closed up and rolled up the sidewalk. Uh, you know, it was dark. And um, so my family and I sat on a, a bench or, you know, some seats there inside the airport next to the ticket counters that were all closed. And this guy comes walking along. He's a, a, a pilot, a captain, and uh, it was one of the airlines. He came over and he said, oh, you guys are a bit early. And I said, oh, well, it was our connecting flight from, you know, Hawaii, and that's the way it went. Uh, he said, well, look, let me fly you down. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be leaving here a couple of hours, and when the desk opens up, just jump on my flight. I'll take you down early so you don't have to sit here and endure, you know, all this while you've got your kids and everything. They were young. So I, I thought, yeah, that's a good idea because nobody knows I'm meeting this guy, his airline, and so he arranged it. He flew me down and the family down to, to, to Melbourne. Well, got there and uh, I I already had in my pocket the name of, a, of an individual down there, um, uh, Charlie Parker, that had been given to me by a, a Jewish friend of mine that worked in that corporation where I was working in Dallas before we left. And uh, John Harbury said, look, if you ever get down there, this is my friend Charlie and he'll take care of you if you need anything. So I thought, right, I haven't connected with uh, Teller's group yet, so I'll call this guy and he set, set me up. Before, with um, Stan, before we kind of 
get to the Australia portion of that story, I just wanted to find out what it was about uh, your research on anti-gravity or electrogravitics that attracted uh, this group, uh, that attracted uh, James, uh, Dr. James Maxfeld to you, that they would offer you that position in Australia. I mean, it seems like, I mean, and, and did they actually show you anything about the flying saucer project that they were doing there in Dallas, uh, Texas? No, no, they didn't in Dallas. And they, they must have had a look at my black border. Well, actually, I'd had a break into the house while I was at the office uh, during the ensuing three or four weeks and into my lab and nothing but some, you know, a, a pistol and a TV set were stolen. But uh, it might have been that they looked at my data then, but uh, I never showed it to them at that point. And what I was working on did did show that gravity could be uh, interfaced using electricity because there was an electric component to, to gravity. It was a dual waveform, divergent convergent waveform. Um, so they must have peeked at some of my work at home or uh, behind the blackboard. Uh, that's all I know. And uh, other than that, they showed me nothing, you know, um, you know, paid for the trip down there and everything else. And so by jumping out a week early, I missed a meeting I was supposed to have apparently with um, uh, James Maxfield. When I got down there, I kept my head down for a while and, um, you know, still being a bit cautious about what was going on because of the FBI involvement. And um, I thought, you know, I, I don't even think I want to join these guys because they're, they're being so secretive and, and uh, you know, it, it, it's a bit uh, weird. I got a job as a systems analyst with uh, William Adams Tractors and Caterpillar and a senior systems analyst. And uh, so for several months, I worked there and, uh, you know, was getting an income to you know, take care of the family. And uh, one day I thought, you know, look, I, I've I've figured out something new on this equation. So I thought, well, I'll call or I'll, I'll mail uh, James uh, Maxfield, Dr. Maxfield, with what I've discovered here, which I did. And suddenly, you know, like within a week, I got an airmail letter back and it says, well, we missed you. You should have been at our meeting, you know, before you left the country. He says, now I want you to contact Captain Sir John Williams here in uh, Melbourne. He's going to be your control officer. And... Um, so he gave me the details, phone number and everything, and I called this Captain Sir John Williams uh, a few days after that. And I told him, I said, uh, or his butler, I said, uh, I'm Stan Dale, I was supposed to call him. And he says, oh yes, we've been expecting a call. And, and then Sir John gets on the phone and he says, boy, where have you been? We've been expecting you for several months. And I said, oh, here's what happened. And he said, all right, well, meet me tomorrow in town. We'll go to lunch at the Australian Club, which is the uh, conservative you know, right-wing uh, gathering of, of the people that made, uh, you know, they were the movers and shakers of the political scene down there. And uh, so I arrived there at the train station. I took the train in from the suburb where I was living at the time. And um, he, he had a Mercedes and a driver that looked like the odd job guy in the James Bond movies, you know, really buff. And... Uh, so they pick up my bags and stuff, put me in the, in the Mercedes, and we drive off to this Australian club. And uh, he, uh, he, we had lunch, and we had lunch with uh, uh, Sir Henry Somerset and uh, with another guy, 
Jim something but it was a professor down at uh, Tasmania at the university there. Why he was there, I don't know. But anyway, the, the conversation at lunch went to several minor topics, and then there was a kind of pause, and Sir John on my right um, says to Sir Henry sitting in front of me, he says, Henry, he says, you know, uh, they're moving in on us now. And I waited for them to explain that, and I said, uh, excuse me, are, uh, by they, are you talking about the European Economic Community? Because we'd been talking stuff like that. And he says, uh, no, no. Um, Henry, are you going to the property this weekend? Maybe we can catch some fishing or something. Yes, yes, John. And that was the end of it. It fell flat. And um, then we retired to the uh, port and cigar room uh, there at the, uh, uh, the Melbourne Club. And... Um, I, I talked with uh, uh, Sir John, who was that's who I was with at the end of the meeting, and about what had happened, what I'd done, and uh, why I'd missed the meeting. And he says, uh, "Okay," he says, "I I want you to go home and uh, write down everyone you've talked to since you left uh, the states, you know, uh, about this and who's approached you and whatever where you've been." So I thought, "Well, that's weird, but I'll do that." And uh, so we walked out the front of the Melbourne Club down into the Mercedes where Oddjob was waiting. And we sat in the back. And I I said, as we drove toward the train station, I said, Sir Henry, I said, uh, uh, you know, I can give you my contact uh, address and numbers and stuff like that. He says, boy, you don't understand. He says, I've got all that. And he reaches over in the side pocket of his door and brings out this file. And he says, uh, this is you. Uh, know all about you. And... Uh, you know, write the report and send it into me. We'll continue from here, which is, you know, I went home and wrote the report. And um, then we had another meeting at the Melbourne Club. And uh, it was just before he was flying off to Jakarta for some business he was doing there. And uh, so I handed him the report in a folder and he thumbed through it. And I'd drawn graphs about how, you know, pictures and stuff and explained how the field effect would work to fly this flying saucer and uh, you know move it around and he got to the last page where i had the cross section of how the thing worked with you know with the field control and he he almost you know lost his uh, his upper dangers he says oh he says uh, can i keep this i said well yes you asked for it it's your report he said good i'll have my people look at it on the way to jakarta i'll get back to you next week so that was how it started and uh I wrote, you know, uh, more of a paper explaining why I thought these things should not be kept quiet. We should be, you know, sharing it with the general scientific community because we could advance humanity, et cetera, et cetera. And at that time, I was not briefed, you know, uh, yet on the alien presence and our deal with them. Um, the uh, Sir John was an interesting fellow, anyway. He 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 was knighted by the Queen for recovering millions of dollars worth of gold uh, over in New Zealand to help finance Britain's uh, participation in World War II. So he was he was knighted by the Queen for that, and he was a, a sea captain as well, a very impressive fellow. Anyway, I um, I worked home at home, didn't go to a facility or anything, and uh, wrote papers as, as required. And he, he looked at one of them, you know, a recent one I read where I said, you know, I really won't think we should share this with people. He says, I don't think you understand the problem, boy. He says, so this is, uh, rewrite this, uh, so that Sir John, so that I and Sir Henry can see it, but do not include about you know we should share this with people, which I did, and um, we'd been working back and forth by phone and by by letter, and uh, after a few months of this, um, one day, 
uh, odd job arrives on my uh, front porch at home early in the, the, the morning with a box filled with all my paperwork and stuff, put it on the, the porch and says, okay, destroy this. He says, if you wish, we've destroyed all record of your participation with us at the office um, and don't contact us anymore. You're dismissed. Well, I thought that's weird. So fortunately, I had that job to, to keep me going there. And um, uh, a few weeks passed, and a gentleman from a, a life insurance company down there approached me uh, to have lunch with him. And he identified himself. I think it was, gosh, Eagle Life or something like that. But anyway, he said, look, we know you've left the program and would like to continue working on your anti-gravity stuff uh, and your free energy stuff with the antenna system you talked about. Um, we own some property in the gold fields uh, up uh, near Miner's Rest, north of, of uh, Melbourne, and we can build you a whole lab facility down there underground, and it's several thousand feet down the, the shaft, but we can build you a whole facility there. But again, the deal is you can't tell anybody that uh, you're going there or what's going on. He says, but we'd like to fund your research. Well, now, call me paranoid, but when you've been dismissed and all record of you has been wiped out, uh, and they want you to work at the bottom of a mine shaft, you know. Uh, well, I thought, okay, fine, thanks. Uh, that's a good idea. We'll talk about this next week. Well, I immediately started making plans to uh, disappear, change my name, um, appearance, whatever, and um, leave town, which I did do. Uh, about, you know, a week to ten days later, I didn't have the second meeting with him. I just left at midnight one night with some hippies I'd met, and uh, uh, we traveled overnight, uh, you know, from about 11.30 or 12 to 1, somewhere in that area, over to Adelaide you know, in South Australia. And from there, I became Noah Davidson. And um, and from there... I just wanted to kind of like um, just get a little bit of clarity here on, on exactly okay, what it was that you uh, were experiencing problems in. I mean... Uh, Back in Dallas, Texas, you were identified or recognized as someone doing this kind of pioneering research on anti-gravity propulsion. They offered to have you or brought you into some program associated uh, with Edward, Dr. Edward Teller, uh, that this uh, Dr. James Max, uh, Maxfield was, was, was running or he was your point man. They were impressed by what you uh, were doing. And and they sent you to Australia, and in in Australia you 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 started to show some of these ideas, and now at, at any point did they actually brief you about what it was that they were doing in Australia concerning these anti-gravitic uh, propulsion systems and flying saucers? Um, only to the fact that we had a, a base in uh, the, uh, the the well at the South Pole, Antarctica, and uh, that there were other facilities, uh, that we were part of an organization. Teller's organization was a, a worldwide thing between scientific community of a lot of countries like uh, Russia, uh, Germany, believe it or not, Germany, and uh, Great Britain, um, Australia. Um, they, in fact, uh, in one meeting with, with uh, Dr. Tom Keeble, uh, who was the head of the Aeronautical Research Lab, I was, I was sent to meet with him and his people. They told me that they were being uh, monitored um, by ASIO, which is the Australian Security Intelligence Organization, kind of like our 
CIA, I guess, or FBI or something. But anyway, uh, during these meetings, uh, they told me about uh, they had uh, video records of these uh, alien craft uh, that I think was at an RAAF Air Force Base there at uh, Sale, I think. Anyway, um, I was briefed, you know, by these people more than by Sir John. And in, in fact, in one meeting uh, with uh, Dr. Keeble and uh, with the guy that's now the current head of that division, um, we were sitting there in a black limousine, drove up down downstairs, we could see it out of the window, and uh, Dr. Keeble said, well, boys, I, I've got to finish this meeting because I've got a lunch with you-know-who. And um, he left, and... Uh, you know, they. I said to them, you know, look, I, I'd like to see some of these videos that you've got at Sale Air Force Base. And I said, uh, can I do that? And they said, uh, we're still in the office. And they said, oh, uh, no, no, you can't. And then they pointed up to the bookshelf and said, you know, like this, we're being monitored. Um, and, and then they whispered, you know, or mouthed out, uh, but yes, you'll be able to see these things. Anyway, uh, there were a number of meetings and discussions like this with other members of the team. And uh, uh, when I left, you know, after I that was approached by that guy after I'd left the facility, um, I found out that there were two of us, myself and one other guy over in England, that had been let go of the program with a lot of knowledge about it, but they they just wiped out all track to, to find us if anyone went, anybody went into their records. Didn't know why at the time, but I did find out later. And when I started to run across the country, uh, you know, in a fake name or whatever, I did manage to meet several of the guys that were security detail with us, uh, you know, back when I was in the program. And they were in a different department because we're very compartmentalized. But anyway, they were, they were civilians now. And so I talked to them about you know, other things that went on there. And um, this, this was quite illuminating, but um, about the aliens particularly, because apparently sometime back, you know, in the 50s, we had, the humans had made a deal with them, and we agreed to build them underground facilities all over the planet, uh, hidden bases, and stock it with um, equipment, uh, materials that they needed, and we would joint uh, jointly operate these bases, but um, then, unbeknownst to me, at some point in the late 70s, um, they had turned on us after we had supplied them all the stuff they needed to bring up, you know, manufacturing and development of weapons and stuff that they wanted. They started to dismiss us from the bases to kick us out. And there were shooting episodes that occurred uh, at uh, Dulce and uh, perhaps other places down at the Antarctic place. But um, my security guys that were now retired saying, you know, I had to, they, they would talk to me, but one of them had like a... Uh, a quiet room. He was in an electrical business, and it was sealed off, so there was no way that anybody could eavesdrop on what we were talking about. And that's where I got to see the uh, how they um, how the craft were made that they were using. And uh, like I got shown Polaroid photographs of uh, the, the core cross sections in a thirty-foot diameter craft and how it worked and that kind of stuff. Um, how you know various things like time altered inside the craft when it was uh, operating and. Uh, you either have fast time or slow time, depending upon the energy density of the field. All these kind of things uh, I picked up from these guys that were now out of the program, you know, like me in essence, but they were still being monitored uh, by, uh, I think it was the Australian Army was what, what the purview they came under at that time, even as uh, civilians. Um, 
gosh, I'm jumping around a bit, but when I left Melbourne, went to Adelaide, I was there a few months growing a beard and starting to look like a hippie and all that kind of stuff so I could hide. And when my hippie friends and I were traveling outside of Adelaide going over to Perth, we had to cross the Great Nullarbor Desert. And a few nights after we'd been out there, um, we're still on the road to, to Perth, it was dark. We saw a car headlight driving up for miles away, which you could see in the de desert. It was so flat. Anyway, this car comes up to our campfire, and a guy gets out, you know, a rather buff-looking individual, kind of without much hair on his head. But uh, anyway, he said, oh, hi, you know, I hope I can intrude and share your fire and have a cup of coffee or something. And so we said, yeah, sure, fine. And he managed to find a, you know, set himself right next to me. There were four of us there, but he came and sat next to me, and we talked for, you know, all of us, uh, maybe 30 minutes, an hour. And while you know, the conversation kind of died down and people were talking amongst themselves, uh, the hippies, um, he leaned over uh, to my, my right ear and he says, um, I know who you really are. Your name is, you know, Standeo, and I've been sent here to kill you. I thought, whoa. There's no place to run. I'm done. He said, but don't worry. I, after talking to you, I realize that you're not a threat, and I'm going to go on to uh, Perth and leave you alone, which he did do. He, he did identify himself as a Jesuit uh, a hitman, is what it amounted to, but uh, you know, a, a fixture uh, you know, of the, the Jesuits. So, um, so, why, so why did someone put out a contract to have you killed? Was it just because... You knew too much. Yeah. What, yeah. what was it that was uh, the the real issue here? That uh, that you had been part of the programs, that you had seen things, seen documents, spoken to people, knew too much about these alien reverse engineering projects and facilities all over the world, the international team, and just all of that information that you yeah. had. That they just wanted to eliminate you because you you didn't sign up or you didn't choose to continue to be part of the project was, was that it wasn't it? my choice it wasn't my choice they they asked me when i was saying that we ought to release this information i apparently uh, uh since i hadn't had that briefing when i left dallas uh, before i left dallas um you know i don't know maybe they injected you or maybe they did hypnosis or something so that you would not uh, be, you know betray the program but i was i was arguing against it and um when i uh, was dismissed from them, and eventually when I went underground um, after that meeting with that insurance executive, um, the the FBI appeared uh, there looking for me in Melbourne to a friend of mine. Uh, the ASIO was looking for me, but the, the Melbourne or Victorian branch, because I was going over to Perth to the West Australian branch. Um, we, I had the CIA had uh, sent somebody Russians had sent somebody. I'm not sure whether Israel did or not, but there were at least four agencies asking questions of my friend back there, uh, Tom. And, um, you know, later he got a, a hold of me through uh, Post Resante, which is, you know, where you don't have a post office box, but you go to, to, to Perth to the uh, post office and they hold letters for you. So that's how I found out how all these people were looking for me. And the reason is, as you said, I think it's because I knew too much and they couldn't afford the attention being brought on them at this point. Um, I mean, look, we had, uh, in, in Russia, uh, Dr. Teller's equal to the program was um, um, 
Dr. Andrei Sakharov, you know, had received the Nobel Prize as well. Um, there were there were other members in other countries. Um, uh, yeah, that's Dr. Teller there. Uh, don't have a picture right at the moment of Dr. Sakharov, but I do have them here. You can look it up, uh, Sakharov. Um, and he and Teller were very good friends. Uh, I have pictures of them together. Um, yeah. The uh, years before I'd met, um, oh, uh, what's his name? Um, the German guy with NASA, as uh, part of Paperclip, or yeah, Paperclip, I think it was. Um, von Braun? What's it? Yeah, von Braun. Von Braun. Yeah. He, he, yeah, he was a, he'd been seeing Dr. Maxfield for you know, chest cancer and he was getting treated. And, and But anyway, I found him to be a rather impressive gentleman. His, his fingers were thick and his hair was thick and uh, he was a big and impressive guy and used um, four-letter words quite fluently in English and China, in, in German as well. But anyway, um, getting back to where we were there in, in uh, Australia, um, when I got to Perth, um, the ACO department there contacted me, and uh, the reason they did was um, they, they, they'd been told to keep an eye on me, but they had a different impression about this data, whether it should be shared with people or not, and they were at odds with all the other branches of ASIO across Australia. Uh, in fact, they were kind of like uh, Texans, like, you know, they acted like we did in Texas, you know, at that time. They, they were they were cowboys, in essence. Uh, anyway, they assigned a, an agent to me. Um, he, he was to kind of keep an eye on me, keep me out of trouble, and uh, defend me if anybody came after me. Another odd job type guy. Really nice guy, quite, quite honestly. But anyway, um, they, uh, this agent rang me one morning at home there, and uh, he said, I need to, to see you at the usual place now. And it was a, a garden outside the house there, some trees and stuff, and I went out there, and sure enough, he was already there. And I said, yeah, what's up? And he says, look, have you um, seen the paper this morning? I said, no, I haven't looked at it. And he says, oh, ASIO, us, he said, we um, killed a guy this morning um, that had broken into ASIO headquarters and was in our file room. And when we killed him, he had a copy of your file in his hands. And I said, gee, okay, I, I'm sorry, I don't know anything about it. He says, no, he said, I just want to tell you that, you know, you have to be a little bit cautious. You're kind of under scrutiny here, uh, you know, um, so... Anyway, uh, when I started doing public lectures, you know, uh, to private churches and things like that, I, they assigned me a, a uh, I think it's a second lieutenant or something like that in the uh, army, uh, and he carried a forty-five under his left armpit, and he was my kind of quiet, you know, guard when I would go out in public like that to keep me from getting wiped out. I'm glad that they did that. Uh, I don't know why, but uh, certainly they preserved me and uh, long enough that I could go on television, which was another story why that happened, but there to a documentary on UFOs and, and aliens that Channel 9 was doing. And so the last 30 minutes of the show was an interview with me telling about what we're talking about now and naming names. And from that, uh, I was approached to to write a book to, to tell this. Uh, I eventually fired the the publishers over there because they burned out too well before we get to the book uh stan i, I just wanted to kind of like just go over that because i think it's very significant so uh you know you're, you're on the run there's you know contract was put out on you someone 
um, they decided you weren't a security threat. And, and then they allowed you to uh, start to give interviews. So at this point, maybe it's, it's good to clarify exactly who are we talking about gave you permission? I mean, there's a group called Majestic 12. Uh, so was it Majestic 12, someone from Majestic 12 that was uh, open or that was allowing you to talk? You know, were, were you allowed to talk in Australia in the 1970s about these reverse engineering programs involving the US, Australia, Britain, Russia, being run out of Antarctica. I mean, that, that's decades ahead of other people talking about it. I mean, that was like you were truly the first whistleblower to talk about this stuff. So someone or some group thought that it was okay for you to do that. Were, were you like a test subject? Were, was that what was going on? Was Majestic 12 or this international group using you as like a, a model for like getting this information out to see the reaction? And, and of course, you did that TV special in 1977. So why don't you tell us about all of that? Well, um, as far as getting permission, uh, I didn't get permission. I just, you know, blew the whistles, what it amounted to. Um, the, um, I figured that, you know, I had one chance when they offered to let me be part of that TV program. And that's another whole story, how that accidentally happened. But um, uh, I, I chose to release, you know, a certain amount of this information, kind of like insurance, um, and to be sure that I didn't die before I at least got this information out to people to know what's coming on, you know, what's going down. Um, let's see. In West Australia, the ASIO group, you know, the intelligence group, for that state were very pro, you know, Texan-type, uh, conservative-type politics, and, and they took me under their wing. Um, you know, by their choice, and uh, so they never threatened me. They they did everything they could to help me. And the United States State Department, however, uh, canceled my passport and my U.S. citizenship. I still have the letters to prove that. And in essence, isolated me there in Australia, so I couldn't go anywhere else. You know, at least in the United States, uh, and and uh, talk about this. Um, I did come back to the States, passing through it in uh, 1983 with the film crew while we were doing a documentary on Nikola Tesla. And as we landed in uh, Los Angeles, we attracted a two-man intelligence team, a white guy and a black guy, that uh, snuggled up to us and, you know, tried to find out what we were about. It was pretty obvious. And then we left from there and went over to, to Belgrade and, and filmed there in Yugoslavia and then came back home. But um, that was the only time that I even got permission as a visitor to come through the United States. The rest of it, I was I was locked like a prisoner in Australia for 30 years. Um, that did change in, in, in uh, 2001. Um, and the guy that make all, uh, made all this happen for me to get back home, was he Majestic 12? I don't know. He was in a very high position. He was the the Secretary of Defense for three presidents, you know, uh, for Nixon, Clinton, and somebody else. And his name was, uh, was uh, uh, James Schlesinger. And um, through a civilian, he made it known that they had copies of my book there in the uh, Clinton administration and in the Defense Department. And that what I had written in the book was correct as far as the game plan of what they were up to. And uh, when I couldn't get back to see my parents in 2001, you know, I thought, well, they're elderly and they're sick and I need to see them. Um, I 
Jim had uh, passed to that civilian what what they had and what they knew about, and I was you know that they were in favor of what I was doing. I called his office. He was now at Lehman Brothers, and he was out to lunch. And so I talked to the secretary and said, "Look, um, just leave uh, this short message for Jim. Uh, Stan Deo needs a favor." Well, two days later, the Australian um, consulate in uh, Melbourne called me and says, oh, Mr. Deo, after all these months of trying to get a green card, we've found that uh, they made a mistake. You didn't lose your citizenship. Uh, we're sending a new passport. Did you have any children while you were down here? Yes. Okay, they'll all get automatic U.S. citizenship passports. It's all being arranged for you. Welcome home. And that was Jim Schlesinger. Now, was he, he was high enough placed to be Majestic 12. Was he? I don't know. Did he take care of me? He did. And I have to admit, when... Uh, Holly and I were on the plane coming back uh, to the States. I was thinking, I hope that it lands intact, and I hope that we're not hassled when we get bad. Um, um, anyway, I... Wow. Well, let's kind of like um, go back to that pivotal uh, period in, in Australia where you went public for the first time. You, you did uh, a television special... Uh, called the uh, the UFOs uh, are here. That was uh, put out by Channel Nine Australia, which really got a lot of circulation. And then that was followed up a year later by your book, The Cosmic Conspiracy. So, I mean, you, in the in the book, you you lay out a lot of information. And and this is 1978. You know, we're talking was that 45 years ago. Uh, <laughs> this you know this is before Bob Lazar. Before yeah. John Lear, before William Cooper, before all of these guys came out, you in 1978 wrote the Cosmic Conspiracy, where you laid out uh, what was really going on in terms of the reverse engineering of captured alien craft, the secret agreements, the the international uh, group uh, responsible for uh, agreements with the ETs. So, I mean, that's that's a that truly is a, a amazing that information. Uh, that you were able to put together in that book. So I, I guess the, the question is, um, I mean, you know, was you must have had powerful protectors to be able to do that in 77, 78. Well, you might think this is uh, silly, but uh, I'm a Christian believer, and I think that the good Lord sent angels to watch over me. I, I've just got to be honest. I had a near-death experience in 69 for, you know, before I even met these people that allowed me to know a lot of things about, you know, how things work out there. But anyway, that Cosmic Conspiracy book, uh, President Reagan had a copy that his wife Nancy bought for him. Remember that, uh, that address he made in the United Nations where he said what we need is an invasion of uh, green men to bring the people together of the planet? I talk about that in the book. Um, Prince Charles had a copy, and his father, the Duke of Edinburgh, um, no, there were a couple of other leaders that have had copies of this. And uh, Schlesinger, of course, in the Clinton's administration, they, uh, I mean, uh, somehow or another, indirectly, I've influenced the thinking of all these leaders and presidents that had the, the copy of the book, which is really quite strange to me, but it, that's the way it happened. So that's why I think there were higher powers involved in keeping me alive and letting that information get out. Yeah, I, I think it, it really would explain a lot because I know, I know, uh, you know I'm Australian. I've spoken to a few Australian security officials on, on these topics and, and they're, you know, 
they won't let out a word. I mean, they're so scared <laughs> of being eliminated because in Australia yeah. and Britain, there, there's no tradition of whistleblowers speaking about these topics and living. But you as an American in Australia, I mean, they... they they probably just, you know, somehow you slipped through the cracks that, that you're, you're, left, you're left alive because, I mean, if you were an Australian, they would have just straight out eliminated you. I, I, don't, I don't doubt that. Um, but yet, as an American living in Australia, somehow you, but like you said, uh, some kind of protection. Um, and, and maybe there is. And I, I know that you talk about that more recently, this, uh, the, the, kind of different factions, the, the negative extraterrestrial faction, the, the positive extraterrestrial faction. In the book of Enoch, they talk about the fallen angels and then they talk about the righteous angels. So really, is your life a reflection of, of you kind of like being in that privileged position, kind of, you know, kind of like an Enoch, where you, you were protected to, to reveal the truth? Well, yeah, I guess so. That's kind of the way I see it. Uh, you know, down in Australia, you remember Sir Sir Joe Bielke Peterson? Do you remember him? Totally, yeah, yeah. Premier. Okay, of well, Queensland. he was a friend, uh, and when I before I'd even written the book, when I was uh, just making private lectures on this, he invited me over to speak. You know, there and uh, his his people took care of me. I had guards during the lectures in Cooperu High School and everywhere else, and. He took me down in government house to his little private room where he and Beryl, his lady pilot, the three of us sat and talked about the Illuminati, about the cover-up, all this kind of stuff. He knew about all that stuff. And when I was in Queensland, I had his protection. Believe me, it was, it was good. Um, so there was, you know, a group within Australia across, you know, the state boundaries that was uh, supporting what I was trying to do. So you're right about that. Okay, so um, what about places like Pine Gap? Were you able to talk about Pine Gap? When did you find out about Pine Gap and what's going on there? I mean, Pine Gap, I think it was uh, built in the 1960s and it's a joint US-Australian base in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the country, a lot of things going on there. So, you know, what do you know about it and what did you reveal? All right, well, when I was on the run, started on the run in Adelaide, you know, uh, under the assumed name, I was in a um, a shop one day. Uh, I guess it was for camping gear or something. And a guy, an American fellow, uh, was standing at the counter, and uh, he was uh, talking that he'd uh, drilled a twenty-five thousand foot water well under the Pine Gap facility. And I said, you know, I'd heard about Pine Gap, and I said, oh, really? And I said, uh, is that where they put the grounding for the uh, Tesla broadcast tower and stuff? He said, you're not supposed to be talking about that. What are you, some kind of traitor? And he walked out. Well, that, if you look at the photos, even today of Pine Gap, the above ground was, uh, part of it, there are, there, there are radomes, obviously, but there's one tower. It was like a Tesla transmitter tower. It stands tall in, in the middle of it. And that was used to broadcast you know, intelligence to naval vessels, you know, through uh, the air, through the ground, whatever they were using out through Exmouth on the West Coast uh, side. At, uh, anyway, uh, so Pine Gap had A, B, and C areas of security levels. The Americans were always cleared in area A in the center, going down the well, and each layer uh, had color coding along, you know, like mm, uh, paint, 
color paint stripes that if your badge didn't match that, that you were either shot or apprehended immediately. And uh, B, area B had, um, you know, that was a, a lower security area. Uh, and, and area C was where only Australians were allowed in. And so there's a mix of that in area B. And um, so basically they only trusted those that they had in area A, you know, Americans. Um, a number of companies, um, you know, electronics companies from uh, Dallas area there were there uh, doing work for the communications. Um, the aboriginals that I met with there, I met with the head of the aboriginal nation there in the West. They said that they saw the, um, the flying saucers, you know, fly up out of that area somewhere. And, uh, that even one of their group of young men that were being uh, taken about walkabout for part of their training, one night they were close to Pine Gap and, uh, you know, were camped by a fire. And they saw one of these craft coming down and landing. So they went over quietly to see, you know, put the fire out, and went over to see what's coming out of the craft. And it was humans. And they pointed a hand pistol at a stone and turned it bright red from the, the output of the weapon. And they were suitably impressed, didn't say anything, and went back uh, to their, their campsite and reported it to the, the leader, which he then retorted, uh, reported to me. Um, there, there was um, a doctor, a dentist, and his friend that were camping up uh, on the hillside. There's two, two streams or two uh, stretches of uh, hillside around Pine Cap. This, uh, if you look at it from here, it's like an eyelid, and there's Pine Cap in the middle of this, these two ridges. Anyway, they were up there hunting, and, um, and toward the late afternoon, a, a, like a four-engine jet came flying over Pine Gap and then just stopped in the air and like a VTOL craft went down like this and the ground opened up and they landed on something that then submerged under the ground and the ground closed over them and that was it. Uh, so, uh, you know, I've talked to a number of people in picking up these pieces uh, over the years. Um, if you go on Google Earth and look at the Exmouth Cape uh, in West Australia, and get close, you will see a lot of the tests that were done with Tesla transmitters to transmit data and even energy to um, naval craft, you know, under the ground and uh, or under the water, sorry, and uh, in submarines and service craft, etc., using this transmitter. It's quite a big one. There's one of them that's like 13 towers, and uh, in fact, they even some have some of the capacitors that were used in it uh, when they closed it down. Um, you know, it was about a five megawatt broadcasting station there. Australia was where we did a lot of things um, quietly. Uh, and somehow or another, you know, the good Lord placed me in that position where I've been able to, you know, be the first whistleblower. And fortunately, there have been others behind me that have, you know, uh, later that have come out and added more to this, like Bob Lazar and some of the others. Yes, uh, so that is very helpful because you know, your your research what you discovered your kind of like confidential talks with others that were read in you you learned that pine gap was used as a base uh that there were flying saucers or anti-gravity craft that were stationed there that that were used and of course it used the the tesla transmissions for the kind of communications with submarines and so forth. What, what about uh, the, the reptilians, the reptilian extraterrestrials? I mean, uh, how did they figure into 
places like Pine Gap. And I mean, you mentioned agreements that were reached and bases were built. So, yeah, how did they kind of figure into your discoveries? Well, I've never met one of the reptilian ones. Uh, I, uh, I think I did meet a couple that were United Nations assigned, uh, you know, from the project that they man and wife team. And they were, mm, they invited me to meet them in their home there in West Australia. Um, and they knew about the project and all that kind of stuff. But I felt like when they were interrogating me, you're, you're questioning me or whatever, that it was like, I was a canary in a cage with the door open, and they were the cat sitting outside. You get a creepy feeling about that. They're like, like humans, I mean, but they just, you know, I was told uh, to, to look at the skin uh, of anybody I suspected that the, the fine scale structure they had in the sunlight would be like an oil spill. You have this iridescent rainbow. Unfortunately, we were in the house. I didn't see them outside, but they were probably that way. As far as real reptilians, you know, lizard skins and whatever, I, I didn't have any information on those. Only on the tall Nordic ones, uh, the gray critters that were created by the Nordics to, you know, they were just biological robots to do various functions. Uh, so I can't, I can't really uh, speak to that. Uh, all right. Well, uh, so the, you you know of these uh, bases uh, that were built around the world for the different extraterrestrials. So you're talking more about the, the, the greys rather than the reptilians, that the bases were built for the, for the greys. And, mm. um, and then eventually there were these firefights. You, you mentioned in the, in the late 70s there were these battles that uh, the extraterrestrials who had the bases built for them started to go to war or started to have battles with the... Uh, nation in charge, uh, and you mentioned the Dulce base. Uh, in, in, that's the very famous incident in Dulce, New Mexico. I think that was uh, 1979, where there was a firefight at Dulce, and uh, I think it was 50 scientists and special forces guys were killed, and a half a dozen greys. So, was that happening kind of like around the world? You know, these conflicts between these negative extraterrestrials and you know, special forces and scientists from different nations? As far as I know, I, you know, I can only assume from what public reports I've read since then about this. Uh, we did have a facility in some of the uh, leftover sealed off tunnels that Hitler had in uh, Germany. And we were at that time working on the West German side before the, the uh, wall came down. Um, whether there were aliens involved in that, I don't know. I would, I was talking strictly to humans involved, some of the British security team as well. Um, the British security team told me about one saucer that crashed off the shore of uh, England and that they'd captured uh, one or two living uh, alien critters, gray critters, and, uh, you know, that he liked, I don't know, raspberry ice cream or something like that, and that they learned a lot about his telepathic abilities and about the craft, uh, you know, in England from that. But... Um, I've seen other reports in the Disclosure Project with Dr. Greer uh, from the former Canadian Defense Minister guy. He was he was saying that there were like 13 different races or something. I, I didn't know that, but um, basically, what I've what I've been able to put together from all these sources is that there are good guys and bad guys, and really bad guys. There's three groups now. 
uh, if you go back to the biblical uh, reference of this time, there's a great deception coming to the whole human race at the end of this age. And I am pretty sure that what we've been witnessing over the last 50, 60 years with these abductions, you, you know, the, the grays basically taking people, uh, poking them, cutting them, hurting them, whatever, that these are are created to basically tell the the humans these alien critters are bad news you know they're evil and so they need to be removed from the game and so a good quote unquote alien group is going to come and be revealed to the people of earth a full disclosure soon and that disclosure is going to be where they say we're going to get rid of all these critters and i guess the other 13 races they were talking about uh, in canada um, we're going to get rid of them all, take them off the planet. They don't belong here. We're going to bring you peace, love, harmony, and safety. We're going to bring you up you know, to, to standard here for the rest of the uh, universe. Now, there, this, this, this whole game has been played so that that announcement can be, be made at a time when the people of Earth, not the governments, but the people are afraid of dying from you know, the weather changes, uh, drought, uh, diseases, you know, like COVID and, and the new COVID and nuclear war coming from the Middle East, uh, you know, threats from outer space, from asteroids and things like this. When people of Earth are ready to receive any help they can get to, to make peace on the planet, then the second group of aliens that, that created the little gray critters is going to come in and get rid of them. And believe it or not, they're going to get rid of the Illuminati. They're going to say, we're going to remove you from this yoke that these businessmen and people all over the planet have put on you. We're going to, we're going to kill them, get rid of them, and you'll have peace. And people that don't know any better and don't know that there's a deception in progress will run, they will rush to this new world government set up by these aliens and the, the man that they appoint to, to uh, run it all. But in essence, the they this allegedly good group of avians are what the Bible would speak of as the fallen angels from the heavens under the direction of a guy called Satan. And that he's down here. He's been down here with us uh, using us to build facilities and structures and, and uh, weapons that he needs in a fight he's going to have with the creator, with, with the, you know, the real Jesus and the God and, and they have the parallel universe uh, that sits above us. And he is going to fight that battle of Armageddon using the stuff he's built here with the basis and technology that we've helped him start. He couldn't do it before because there weren't enough places to get the mining facilities and various other things and industry to support what he wanted to do. Now, I know that all sounds science fiction, but that's the way the Bible talks about it. There's a great war coming at the end, a great battle. And this is all part of that, that great deception. So. Whenever the New World Order under these quote-unquote friendly aliens says to you, uh, let us give you a digital ID and solve all your problems, just swear allegiance to us, beware if you're here. Okay, well, you know, that, that kind of sounds very much like the um, television series V uh, where you, you do have this kind of uh, arrival of what appear to be friendly uh, human-looking aliens promising peace but in fact they're, they're led by someone uh, that uh, uh, well whatever you call that person i mean in the movies in the tv series v uh, uh she's called anna and you know she would be the equivalent of what you were saying like a, a antichrist or satan 
that uh, that series you think is actually very close to the truth? Uh, if you look at that share screen I've got there, this is from the first series of V um, back in mid seventies when it was a, a TV um, movie made for TV. Uh, and uh, this is, uh, in fact, if you look at the modern version of the show, the woman on the left is a, uh, more aged and plays the mother of Anna. But uh, yeah, th this, th I used this movie in many home lectures at the time when I was trying to blow the whistle and saying, this is what's coming. This is going to be, you know, a deception. And whether or not, you know, the, the aliens, uh, the deceivers have plastic skin over them or not, I don't know. There may even be some technology that they can bioengineer, DNA modify themselves to look human. But the Bible does say that it will be like, uh, like Satan, the, the the serpent of the great garden. That's reptilian DNA. So I think that, yeah, it, that's that's probably what's happening. Anyway, I'll get back to you there. Okay. Well, you know, I guess you know that's 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 all. I guess it's all predicated on the idea that Hollywood, that funded and created that series, was really telling us the truth, or were they being funded by the deep state to kind of like make us fearful of genuine positive aliens or extraterrestrials like the Nordics arriving and getting people so frightened that, uh, you know, that we'll just kind of like be suspicious and not work with them. So in, in a way, it's like, uh, uh, it's like counterintelligence, you know, like that the V series. I mean, it, this is the question. Is the V series kind of like revealing so what's what's really coming because you know it's consistent with say the book of revelations and the bible or is it counterintelligence being used by the deep state to manipulate christians into believing that the, the future liberators are in fact these evil reptilians in disguise good question uh kenneth johnson actually wrote the series in the books that the tv series was uh, developed around I've tried to contact him several times because uh, definitely his plot line in the first, well, in fact, yeah, in, in, in the first V series did use a lot of biblical book of revelation type um, events uh, to, uh, you know, reptilians opposing as, you know, as, as uh, humans, you know, they were really uh, led by a very evil uh, you know, alien reptilian creature. I mean, there were a number of things in there. I can't call them all to mind at the moment, but that were fulfilling what would happen in biblical prophecies in our time. So, is this a deep state, a deep state um, ruse? Um, you know, it could be several layers to that. Surely, uh, like a chess game. But I do believe, in the end, that what is about to happen is not only are these creatures going to be revealed as "quote unquote" friendly, but get rid of the baddies that we are going to see a large segment of the human population either drop dead or disappear off the planet in what the Bible calls the rapture. Well, biblical students call the rapture. And I have debated with um, one of the leaders of the Findhorn group, which is a New Age movement, uh, with his audience, uh, debated about this removal of a large segment of the population. And they say they're expecting that to happen because when the, our elder brothers from space come, as they say, 
they are going to send away all the souls here that are not in harmony with the new age that is coming with them to other planets to be repolished, you know, their souls made, made correct, and then they can come back. So they're already allowing for a rapture type event to occur, but calling it instead a, a way to get rid of everybody that wasn't agreeing with the new world order under this alien invasion. So, yeah, it could be. It could be that level, as you're saying. Well, I, I know uh, during the kind of last year of the Trump administration, I think it was in uh, uh, the latter part of 2020, there was an Israeli professor that came forward, uh, Professor Haim Eshed, who is the founder of the Israel, Israeli space program. I mean, he was the guy that set up their military satellites. And and he, he said that there was a galactic federation that was in communication with the Trump administration and that Trump wanted them to reveal themselves, or he wanted to announce them, but they said it's not yet time. Humanity isn't ready. That w our technology is still too primitive. So, you know, what what do you think of that? Is is that uh, that Galactic Federation that Hamish had talked about? Uh, are they part of the good guys, or are they part of this deception that you've been talking about? Good question. Again, I, I don't know. Uh, there's just not enough information to uh, for us to to decide. I really think that we'll be able to pinpoint, you know, good angels from bad angels, uh, as by their acts, by their actions. If this new world government is set up and all the the ten regions of the planet are put into this this global, you know, consortium, and a guy is appointed a human to run it but he has the access to the technology of the aliens, then we know at that moment, if we are still here and not raptured out of here, we know to watch out and to do everything we can to not be numbered and tracked by this new world order. Um, you know, there are, there are viewpoints, uh, several viewpoints about this rapture business, whether uh, the rapture of the believers will occur at the beginning of a seven-year tribulation, in the middle or to end, Personally, I think it will occur just at the beginning um, and that we will be removed, those of us who are aware of the deception, will be removed so that we can't be a thorn in the side of the uh, the satanic group that are opposing. Um, look, good angels have been amongst us in, in the past. There have been reports of it. You know, um, Sodom and Gomorrah, there were good angels that took Lot and his family out. Uh, you know, and the Bible tells you to be careful but to entertain strangers because you don't know whether they're angels or not. Uh, so good guys and bad guys walk, guys walk amongst us. Whether the, What you were saying in Israel, whether that was a, um, a good alien, you know, good uh, angel, whatever, I don't know. Uh, you have to determine by their actions what side they're on. Okay, okay. So w w where do you think we are now in terms of... Uh, Right now, you've you've have uh, the U.S. Congress holding hearings on UFOs. The reverse engineering programs are on the verge of being revealed. Um, do 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 you think we're going to have kind of like a major disclosure of all of these things? Uh, the the programs that go back. I mean, you 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 were in the 1960s and 70s. I mean, you you learned about these. So, do you think we're, they're going to reveal all of that going as far back as as then, or even earlier to the 50s and even the 40s you, you think that we're going to have disclosure oh i think so to, to a degree um to a degree necessary to form this uh, one world government and dismiss the current you know rulers of the various countries 
uh, look at the Middle East, uh, with Saudi Arabia being the uh, the elephant in the room over there trying to organize the Arab nations in a um, an agreement, a treaty with Israel at the moment. And uh, over the Palestinian issue, that's going to be the major solution to that. And so Mohammed bin Salman is doing that. And there's a threat of nuclear war on Israel by Iran, a very real and present, clear present danger. Now, that threat is it's not going to wait, you know, another year or two before it, it uh, something happens. We're we're seeing uh, movements in the Middle East uh, and in, in in Washington here uh, uh, against Israel that that tells me this is going to happen soon. Now, we're looking also at a collapse of the world economy, certainly the U.S. economy. So the whole world is pregnant with various things coming to a head, uh, weather changes, problems with the sun, you know, problems with, uh, you know, coronal mass ejections and the threat of EMP attacks, uh, you know, electromagnetic, uh, you know, um, uh, well, electromagnetic bombs that, that produce a wave that kills all the power and electronics and computers. All this is part of a threat uh, to humanity in, in general. So all this is coming to a head, and it's not going to wait. It's We can't get past this point. Everything is pregnant with about to happen. Nuclear war, uh, disease, uh, you know, alien disclosure. This is the time. We, we are fortunate enough to live and know what is happening in this generation. So keep your eyes open. I mean, I, I expect every tick of the clock something to be announced that's going to take us further and further to a public disclosure and a meeting with friendly aliens. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't think we're talking about years to wait on this. So how, how do you feel? I mean, uh, you, you, you wrote and you and began doing lectures in the kind of mid-1970s in Australia on these topics. And, and of course, you experience your fair share of criticism and ridicule. But now, how do you feel? Do you feel that, like uh, you're being vindicated with uh, what, what, what's coming? I mean, the U U.S. Congress holding hearings. Passing, passing legislation to have all of the reverse engineering of uh, captured alien spacecraft uh, released to the public. Uh, how do you feel about all of the, all of those developments? Well, it's kind of a hollow victory, but you're right. I mean, uh, I'm vindicated now after years and years of, uh, you know, doubts and uh, accusations and whatever. But uh, as you say, there have been other whistleblowers that have come along, and there are a lot more coming out now with the Greer uh, procedure. Um, you know, um, I, I feel like I've warned people, uh, you know, to either be Christian or not, uh, you know, to believe and, and, uh, ask for help to be delivered from this. And that's my job now is to help people understand there's a way out of this, but not by our own efforts. And, uh, you know, I, I, when I see like the, you know, the, the, the the threats on Israel, that's the, Israel is kind of the key to what is happening in the world political situation at the moment um, with Iran, with Saudi Arabia. Uh, watch over there. I mean, if if this Abraham Accords deal is uh, ratified by Mohammed bin Salman, by Saudi Arabia, there will be 40 other Arab nations that will follow, including the Palestinian people who will get a hunk of land uh, in this settlement, which is not a good thing. But anyway, when that happens, if you're still here, know that that world order and full disclosure is right at your doorstep. 
So where do people go, Stan, if they wanted to kind of like learn more about you, find, uh, buy your books, uh, attend any kind of webinars, lectures, or contact you in any way? So where do people go? Well, uh, my wife, Holly, works about six days a week um, getting the news, uh, looking at news that that affect us, you know, biblically and politically, uh, and put it on our website at standeo.com. That's S-T-A-N-D-E-Y-O.com. And if you go there, uh, she has comments and editorials on all this stuff about what's happening. We have certain links that are there all the time, like links to our um, shopping cart, which has our books, um, DVDs, uh, flash drives, whatever, which people can use in this time. Um, if you look at our web page at standio.com in the right hand corner, there'll be a, a graphic microphone and it'll say show images. And uh, you can click on that, it'll take you to a, another sub page that I, I run, which is where I give lectures and I put things on there that talk about the Antichrist, about the Garden of Eden, Atlantis, all that kind of stuff. And you can just get there, read it, uh, view it, whatever. And um, on the other side of that microphone, there is four, you know, previous interviews. You can listen to a lot of these tapes and, and podcasts that, that I've done over the last uh, 20 years. Well, I, I want to just kind of acknowledge the incredible work you've done in, in exposing these issues going all the way back to the mid-1970s with your lectures and TV specials and your book the cosmic conspiracy i mean that's you're way ahead you're a decade ahead of uh, others even bob lazar and all of these other kind of like veterans people who've been around for decades you're more than a decade ahead of all all of them in revealing the existence of these reverse engineering programs and uh, i just want to kind of acknowledge that i think you're a hero of disclosure and uh, i look forward to uh, future interviews, especially as uh, more things develop and uh, we, we get to kind of hear your perspective on what's what's going on. So thank you, Stan. Thank you. Appreciate it. You have been listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit exopoliticstoday.com.